Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories. And I have a blog that you can check out if you'd like, and the name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right, today is Tuesday, February 1st, 2022. And we are rolling into a discussion about how the big-time, powerful football interests really see themselves in the college sports marketplace, both at the financial level and also at the regulatory level. And we're going to start talking about these hearings in 1997, which really explain this ongoing battle that's been in place since the 1950s between the haves and the have-nots in the big-time college football marketplace. And I think we've established that this is a football show. Football has driven the train both at the market structure level and at the regulatory level. And I think these hearings, both the 1997 hearings and then the 2003 hearings, provide a really good context, a nice window into how the stakeholders in the have-have-not debate see themselves in the marketplace and the arguments that they make. And at the broadest level, that debate, those arguments really land with the big-time football interests, what are now the Power Five, trying to preserve whatever status quo they have agreed on and that they think is in their interests financially in terms of market share. And then the have-nots are challenging the prevailing status quo, and they want a pathway to have a seat at the table with the big boys. To, to put this in some historical context, I thought it made sense to go back and talk a little bit about the evolution of uh, big-time college football. Going back to the, actually, I would say World War II. We're going to start with World War II and then pick up in the 1950s when the NCAA really became a meaningful force at the regulatory level. And I'm going to use a couple of resources that uh, I've relied on through the course of this podcast. The first, is a book by Keith Donovan titled The 50-Year Seduction. And he talks about the television era in college football and the influence that television had on the marketplace in college football, but also on the culture of college football. And this book was published in 2004. So it brings us up really to this period where we're talking about the Bowl Championship Series, the BCS. The big-time football was structured at that time through the BCS. But Donovan talks about the, the history of how we got from there to here, and it's a great read. I think that if you really want to understand the business motivations of the big-time college sports interest, this is a, a must-read. And I talk quite a bit about it in my Prisoner's Dilemma episodes in discussing this historical power struggle between the NCAA and the powerful football interests. And that, of course, came to a head in 1984 with the Board of Regents decision. And then the second book is a very interesting book that is in the nature of an expose and I guess an autobiography, but it's Walter Byers' book, Unsportsmanlike Conduct, Exploiting 
college athletes. And I've talked about uh, Byers so much in this podcast, and he's really the architect of the basic business model and regulatory model in big-time college sports. He was the NCAA's first full-time chief executive, and he held that position from 1951 to 1987. He was largely responsible for uh, developing the NCAA's enforcement jurisdiction and its monopoly over televised football. And then he lost that empire in Board of Regents. And, And Byers' book is really interesting to me. And I have read it several times and I go back to it occasionally as I'm talking about other issues. It's a great resource from a college sports history standpoint. And you're getting essentially the play-by-play of the modern college sports era from the man who really was the architect of that regulatory and business model. But by the same token, whenever you have somebody who has been in a position of power at an organization and they've developed a certain set of principles, and then that person leaves and then turns on those principles, and that's what Byers did in this book, I, I think you have to look at the new positions with a bit of skepticism and dig a little bit deeper to try to tease out motives. But Byers makes the case that many of the philosophies that the business model is built on, the values-based philosophies, like amateurism, like the student-athlete, which he and NCAA lawyers invented out of whole cloth to avoid workers' compensation liability, not as a statement of the relationship between the athletes and their institutions or, or the athletes in higher education. And it became an immunity shield. Now, that term is so well ensconced in the public consciousness that it elicits a conditioned response that's favorable to the NCAA's institutional interest. When people hear the word student-athlete, they don't think, oh, that's a fraud. And the man who invented it said so in a 1995 book. That's not the way that the propaganda machine works. After Byers' book was published, ignoring that book was a full-time job for the NCAA. And it didn't receive a lot of attention. A lot of people thought it was kind of a sour grapes book, and it could certainly be read that way, and there are portions of it, particularly when Byers is talking about the events and and the transactions and the negotiations leading up to what became the Board of Regents suit and the formation of the College Football Association that I'm going to talk about here in a minute. I think you get the sense that Byers felt like he was betrayed. He was double-crossed, and he thought he had everything moving forward, and everybody was reading from the same page, and that was not the case. So you have this duality in, in the book. It's a valuable resource, I think, in understanding better the, the history of modern college sports. But when it comes to some of Byers' rhetoric, I, I view that cautiously. And I, I imagine if Mark Emmert were to retire next year, and then a couple years after that, he uh, wrote a book that turned on all of the propaganda that he was spewing for over a decade. And he said, that was all just a bunch of BS. We knew it was BS and we were putting it out there for selfish commercial business reasons. If he said that, I wouldn't be eager to read that book. You know, and Byers wrote his book a long time ago, and I think it has gotten more attention in the context of the athletes' rights movement in the 21st century than it got when it was published. So that's my disclaimer on the Byers book. But even with that disclaimer, I think you still have to pay attention to what Byers said, because some of these principles that he's talking about, he invented. 
That's not the case with Mark Emmert. Mark, Mark Emmert hasn't had an original thought since he became the NCAA president. Walter Byers built this massive commercial enterprise, and he was the architect of the principles that were used to advance the business interests by disguise. So because of that, I, I think it's an important read. So what I want to do is go back to the, really, the post-World War II era. And one of the things that Byers talks about in the evolution of college sports was the significance of that period, really 1945 to 1956. And I did an episode in my pay-for-play series that addressed that that time frame and some very important things happened. After World War II, you had the GI Bill and the education benefits that came with it that opened up higher education to a whole new swath of Americans and the American middle class had access to a college education in a way that it didn't before. So you had this influx of, of college students and combined with that, you had developments in the reach and quality of air travel, which was important. And Byers talks about these factors because it allowed the uh, recruiting market to expand and the recruiting footprint for a lot of schools expanded because of that. And recruiting became more national. And Byers also thought that another factor that was important in the evolution and growth of college sports, and he's really talking about college football, was the improvement quality of our communications infrastructure after World War II, and it became a lot easier to communicate with people who were far away, and the quality of the communications were, were much better. And that was a huge boon in the recruiting market. So you had all these things coming together post-World War II that created what buyers described as a Wild West recruiting market, and it was just wide open. And then we had some really important milestone events, transformative events in the 1950s. The first and perhaps most important, and this is teased out in Donovan's book, was the expansion of television technology, the increase in the number of televisions in, in American homes, and the mainstreaming of television as part of the American experience. And that coincided with the NCAA hiring Walter Byers as the the NCAA's first full-time CEO. And right from the very beginning, Byers was looking at television and trying to figure out how it fit into the big-time college football marketplace. And the conventional wisdom at that time was that televised football was actually a threat to the overall big-time football marketplace because if people could watch on TV, they wouldn't uh, show up for the games and ticket sales would go down and gate receipts and concessions and all the things that really were primary revenue sources for uh, big-time college football at the time. There were a couple of products out there that had existed for a number of years. The University of Pennsylvania had a really sophisticated TV product and package, and so did Notre Dame, and they had contracts with broadcast media outlets, and they were actually defying that conventional concern about 
ticket sales and losing the live audience because Penn was making money off of his television contracts and it was also selling out Franklin Field in Philadelphia. And they had a nice thing going. Walter Byers and the NCAA decided to do a couple of experimental years where they looked at the at market data. And then they decided ultimately that television was the way to go. It was the future. And when Byers and the NCAA decided that they were going to be in the televised football business, and that was going to be part of the business model, they very aggressively, Byers particularly, was very aggressive with the University of Pennsylvania and Notre Dame in demanding that they give up their TV contracts. They fall in line so that the NCAA could monopolize the televised football market. And there were obvious antitrust concerns, and Donovan talks about that, that the University of Pennsylvania's lawyers were saying, the NCAA can't do this, but there was enormous pressure within the membership to go with the NCAA as the sole contractor for televised football. And so Walter Byers pulled off this coup and he created uh, an ironclad monopoly over televised football. And that was for all regular season football. And they rationed games and it, it was just not a great business model. But it gave the NCAA absolute control over the most valuable college sports product in the marketplace. And then you had in, in the 1950s, the Kentucky basketball scandal where Byers stared down Adolph Rupp in Kentucky over a, a point-shaving scandal. And he put the, the school on a, a year's probation, which was really the very first enforcement action by the NCAA. So you had the Byers coming in and taking over the football marketplace and then also creating meaningful in, infractions and enforcement jurisdiction. And uh, Byers devotes a chapter to that Kentucky case. And he it was very proud that he opened the very first infractions and enforcement file on that Kentucky case. And then you had in the 1950s the invention of the student-athlete that I mentioned earlier, and that was a cynical ploy to avoid workers' compensation liability. And then you had the adoption in 1956 of the full athletics scholarship, and that was outright pay-for-play. And, and Byers suggests that in his 1995 book. But in 2007, he had his deposition taken in this white suit, this suit in California, that was trying to get the athletes' cost of attendance scholarships. And during that deposition, Byers said to, to heck with the cost of attendance scholarship as pay for play, because that was the NCAA's position, that that scholarship would transform these athletes into professionals and employees, and that it was a clear violation of amateurism rules because it was pay for play. And Byers sneered at that, and he said, forget the cost of attendance stipend, the entire athletic scholarship is pay for play. That was not not what the NCAA wanted to hear in that case. But that was a, a crucial milestone. And that basic relationship between the laborers and the beneficiaries of that labor hasn't changed that much since 1956. So those events in the 1950s really formed the scaffolding for a business model in college sports that exists today. And then we're heading into the 1960s and the civil rights era, and that had an important impact on college sports, and in particular, college football. And both Byers and Donovan talk about that because you had some schools in the South, actually most schools in the South, who weren't recruiting black players and didn't have black players on the roster. And so you had a lot of black talent going up to the Midwest and the, and the West Coast, and it was a real problem. And in some of these bowl games, these Southern bowl games, the orange, the sugar, the cotton, they were 
would not uh, allow a team to come from another region that had black players on the roster. They would say, you can come and play us, but your black players have to stay home. And when you talk about that ugly chapter in the history of college sports and you try to explain it to young people today, it makes absolutely no sense to them. And they're appalled by it, as they should be. And eventually you had these bowls relenting on that because it was hurting their market value. And there were teams from other regions who said, no, hell no, we're not going to come down and and play you on the condition that we leave some of our uh, athletes and and teammates at home. No way. And that, I think, put some pressure on on the Southern bowls. And then that bled over into the institutional thinking and the recruiting. And slowly, some of those barriers started to come down and heading into the 70s. But also in the 60s, you you had the maturation of the televised market and you had networks really looking at sports programming as a a valuable component in their overall programming. And it was live programming and that's gold. And I've talked about that as well. So we're heading into the 70s. And then I think you started to see these big-time, powerful football interests starting to look at the business model that buyers had created. And and they were not crazy about being told by the NCAA when they were going to play, who they were going to play, how often they could be on TV. And as the technology improved and there were more and more television sets and the value of televised football skyrocketed, you started to see the first inklings of the football interest saying, you know what, we want to have some control here and we want a bigger piece of the pie. And that expressed itself in part through the powerful football interest starting to take more control at the regulatory level in the NCAA. And they they were in favor of the creation of the three divisions. And that was in 1973. But before that, you had the university division and the college division, which was a a big and coarse cut between the bigger schools and the smaller schools. And in this new divisional structure, Division I really segregated its financial products from the rest of the NCAA. And you know, moving through the 70s, you, you had these powerful football interests thinking a different way, and they wanted their autonomy. They wanted more money. And in 1977, these powerful football interests that were really led by the Southern f- football interests, they created an organization called the College Football Association, the CFA. And the original goals of the CFA, and it included all the football interests, This was a unified group to begin with. And their thinking was that they just wanted to have a more organized presentation of their interests and some of the concerns that they had regarding the the existing marketplace. And so they were putting some pressure on the NCAA and they wanted their interests isolated and protected. And in 1978, the NCAA capitulated to the powerful football interests and created subdivisions within Division One, and you had the creation of uh, Division 1A and, and 1AA. Those two divisions are now what comp- 
comprised the FBS. So you had a further separation out from the rest of Division One, And that move in 1978, I think, more so than the creation of the three divisions in 1973, really set the template for these powerful football interests to demand that they get their way under the NCAA umbrella. And those were very potent threats back then because the NCAA was getting all of the television revenue. This is before they lost it in, in Board of Regents. So they really needed to work with the powerful football interests. And March Madness didn't exist. <laughs> it was We had the NCAA Division I men's basketball tournament, but it was not a huge moneymaker then, particularly relative to the money that they were making on televised football. So the CFA developed a lot of power, and it had clout, and it wasn't afraid to, to use it. And then certain of the CFA members, again, led by the Mavericks in the Southern conferences. And Notre Dame was on board with this too. And so was Penn State. Penn State was an independent back then. But you had these powerful football interests really starting to put some pressure on the NCAA to change these contracts, these uh, broadcast media contracts in a way that would allow the powerful football interests to make more money and, and also importantly, have more control over who appeared in these televised games. So this was a, a period of the NCAA trying to negotiate but retain its power and then the powerful football interests having this sort of silent threat that they could take their product somewhere else. There was this really interesting dance that they were doing, but it all circled around access to the money from televised football. And another really important event and trend that Donovan talks about is that in this uh, period of the late 70s and into Board of Regents in the early 80s, you had the rise of cable TV. And cable TV became more and more part of the overall broadcast media market. You had the launch of ESPN in uh, 1979 and the early footprint for this massive broadcast media exploitation of big-time college sports. The Southern schools and conferences became less and less patient, and they wanted something to happen more quickly. And then there developed this rift between the Southern conferences and schools, what are now essentially the ACC, SEC, and Big 12, versus the Big 10 and Pac-10, on the other hand, and the Big Ten and Pac-10 started to come to the belief that the Southern football interests in these conferences and schools were going to destroy the NCAA and had a plan to basically take over the entire association. And you know, that started to lead to some bad blood. And then the, the Pac-10 and the Big Ten, they pulled out of the CFA. And that was pretty early in the CFA's existence. And this developed into a really intense kind of Hatfield and McCoy's relationship. It was a feud. It was an open feud. And Donovan talks about that in some detail in his book. And it got personal and it, it destroyed relationships. And it just seemed that the, the more the Southern schools pressed their case with the NCAA on televised football, the farther those two sets of conferences grew apart. And the rift wasn't just a relationship rift. It was a business rift. And that wasn't reconciled really until the 1990s, the late 1990s, when the Pac-10 and the Big Ten brought the Rose Bowl into what was then the Bowl Alliance and the 
then became the Bowl Championship Series. And I'm going to talk a lot about that when we get to these hearings. But that was a 20-year Cold War, and it was not healthy for college sports or for college football. And I think there's still some residue from that rift that has uh, relevance and resonance today. And I think that played out in the decisions over fall football during COVID in 2020. And you had the uh, Southern Conferences, ACC, SEC, Big 12, going full steam ahead. And you had the Big 10 and the Pac-12 holding back and aligning more with NCAA's interests and the approach of the NCAA, which was basically to shut down the entire college sports marketplace during COVID. And I think that also reflects this historical connection between the Big Ten and the Pac-12 and the NCAA. And you have to remember that Walter Byers came out of a Big Ten culture. He was actually the head of the Big Ten at the conference level. And when the NCAA hired him in the early 1950s, he set up shop in Chicago in the same offices that the Big Ten had. And there was a built-in connection and a built-in allegiance between the Big Ten and the NCAA and and also the the Pac-10 and the NCAA. And back in August of 20. I did a blog post on that dynamic titled The Ghosts of the College Football Association. But in the late 1970s, the Southern schools were formulating a plan to sue the NCAA under antitrust laws so that they could force their way into the televised football market. And in 1981, they did just that. They sued the NCAA. And that, of course, really entrenched this rift between the Southern conferences and schools and then the Midwest and West Coast schools. And the named plaintiffs in that suit were the University of Georgia Athletic Association and then the University of Oklahoma Board of Regents. And that's where the case gets its name, Board of Regents. The plaintiffs, UGA and Oklahoma, they won at every level. They won in the district court, they won in the Tenth Circuit, and then they won in the United States Supreme Court. And the U.S. Supreme Court declared that the NCAA's monopoly over televised football was a clear violation of the Sherman Act, and they struck down all the contracts, and they turned over to the free markets the future of televised football. And again, I've talked about that so much. And I believe, despite all the amazing events of 2021, that that Board of Regents case is still the single most important event in the history of college sports. So post-Board of Regents, you had the CFA entering into its own contracts with broadcast media outlets, but there was a disorganized market. There was a glut of television programming. The uh, supply and demand curves were unstable, and it was really uh, chaotic. And in fact, and Donovan talks about this, after Board of Regents, the uh, members of the CFA wound up making less money under the CFA contracts with broadcast media outlets than they would have made under the NCAA monopoly contracts. And then almost immediately, You had antitrust concerns being leveled against the CFA, and I think it was the Justice Department that got involved. So the CFA was facing some antitrust scrutiny, and and I find that interesting. So much of the evolution of college football has been driven by antitrust concerns, and that was true in the Board of Regents case, then it was true with the CFA after Board of Regents, then it was true in this battle between the haves and have-nots that played out through 
through the 90s and into the 2000s. And I think that that issue is still alive with these discussions about the expansion of the CFP. So antitrust law has been a very powerful tool and the, or the threat of the application of antitrust laws has been a really important tool to try to bring some balance and equity into the market. And I just find it so ironic that those laws, which have had such a profound influence on the marketplace and the business-to-business issues and, and squabbles, that those laws are, are on the chopping block when it comes to the athletes' use of antitrust laws to try to create some equilibrium from their perspective, for their interests. And the NCAA and the Power Five want a, a complete antitrust immunity from Congress so that athletes can't avail themselves of the protections of the Sherman Act. That's just a, an irony that is mind-bending to me. And so anyway, after this crazy glut of content, you started to see some of the CFA members start to question whether the CFP was really going to be a viable organization for them. And you had schools and conferences starting to leave, including the SEC. And the SEC was a driving force behind that lawsuit. And I guess the other thing to point out is that Board of Regents really wasn't about the postseason. The postseason had always operated kind of independently independent of the rest of the college football marketplace. And there were only a handful of bowls and you had some traditional tie-ins, conference-based tie-ins to these major bowls. I think there were four or five. And initially, I guess it was the orange, cotton, sugar, at rose. And then the Fiesta Bowl came on the scene later on. But you had a very small number of bowls, and that really wasn't the issue in Board of Regents directly. It was these contracts for regular season football and the NCAA's monopoly over that marketplace. So the early post-Board of Regents era, the, the rest of the 80s and really most of the 90s, you had these attempts to try to reorganize the football market. But remember, you still had this powerful rift between the, the Southern football interests and then the Midwestern and Western interests. And in terms of the postseason, the, the Pac-10 and the Big Ten, they were very happy with their Rose Bowl. And you have to remember, too, that among the big bowls, the Rose Bowl was king on, on every level in terms of history, in terms of prestige, in terms of money and, and return on investment. The, the Rose Bowl was by far the top bowl in America. And they just were happy holding on to that, and they didn't really want to have a lot to do with the Southern conferences. So heading into the 1990s, as the, the CFA's power is declining, and in fact, the CFA disbanded in 19. 19- 97 and was a shell of an organization for its last few years. But beginning in the early 1990s, you had the Southern Bowl interests coming together to try to put a postseason package together that would try to move towards a something that resembled a national championship game to try to get the best two teams in the country playing in one of these bowls. And the first iteration of that was the Bowl Coalition from 1992 to 19. 19- 94. And then that gave way to the Bowl Alliance from 1995 to 1997. And then after the Bowl Alliance, the powerful football interest formed the Bowl Championship Series, and that was in place from 1998 to 2013. 
And then after that, of course, we have the CFP. But that transition from the Bull Alliance in the 1997-1998 period into the BCS was really important because in that transition, the Bull Alliance was able to fold in the Rose Bowl. So there was at least at the business level some reconciliation between these two warring factions of the Southern Conferences on the one hand and then the Big Ten and the Pac-10 on the other because the Big Ten and Pac-10 owned the Rose Bowl essentially. And they folded the Rose Bowl into this new system under the BCS to increase the likelihood that the two best teams in the country could meet in a true national championship game. And it was an imperfect system. It wasn't a playoff. And they were very clear they wanted to maintain the bowl system. Talking about the the playoff to the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries in big-time college football in the 1990s was heresy. If we have a playoff, it's going to bring college football to its knees, all all the usual stuff. I'm going to talk about that a bit when we get to this 1997 hearing. But the Pac-10 and the Big Ten viewed bringing the Rose Bowl into the alliance structure as a huge concession and it had real impact because they were sharing their prized asset with the rest of college football. And under the BCS structure, there could be circumstances where the Rose Bowl would host this national championship game, theoretically between number one and number two, and that would freeze out one of the conferences, the Big Ten or the Pac-10 from the Rose Bowl. So they viewed that as a concession, and that came up through representatives from the Big Ten. I don't know if the, the Pac-10 had a representative there. I don't think they did. But Jim Delaney, the conference commissioner for the Big Ten, was there, and he made that point repeatedly. But I think that was a really important event, and it was driven, obviously, by business interests and trying to maximize revenue in the postseason. And from a pure business standpoint, that required the cooperation of all the powerful football interests, and doing it on a regionalized basis just wasn't really in the best interests of college football or of the the big-time college football market participants. But at a symbolic level, that was really important because it was an olive branch between those two groups. And that really laid the foundation for this crazy round of conference realignment, which was really beginning to pick up then. It started in the mid-90s, and it was just this wild game of musical chairs. That's how Keith Donovan described it in, in, in his book. And you had uh, schools jumping from one conference to another. But the the purpose of all that conference realignment was really along the lines of what happened in this 1997 BCS accommodation to bring the powerful football interests together and aggregate their market potential. But conference realignment was driven by that same theme. And these big conferences were trying to put together the best football packages that they could. Conference realignment was a football-driven show. And Donovan's book ends in 2004, and that was when the uh, have-nots who were outside of the the BCS or on the short end of the BCS postseason bonanza, they were making noise in Congress as well. So Donovan doesn't, obviously doesn't talk about how conference realignment ended up and then the transition into the Power Five conferences. But as uh, conference realignment played out, you had the aggregation of uh, football power and then secondarily and following that aggregation of basketball power, the likes of which the college sports marketplace had never seen. And those five conferences have 65 schools, 53 are state universities, 
some of the most powerful, prestigious universities in the United States and in the world, 34 of the nation's flagship state universities. And their power uh, is, is not just football power and market share power. It is political power as well. And I've, I've spoken about that too. And I think that's going to play itself out when the Power Five with their newfound authority and control of the voluntary regulatory model under the NCAA umbrella on the backside of this Constitution Committee. They're going to use the political power that's built in to the Power Five uh, membership. And they're going to be, I think, much more effective than the NCAA was at the political influence level and at the lobbying level, that uh, is going to be a powerful obstacle for athletes' rights advocates as the Power Five gets ready to re-engage with Congress whenever they think that's appropriate. So that, that discussion of the aggregation of football power through the Power Five conferences brought me up to the present. So I left a few things in the timeline that I want to go back to. And in the 19... 90s. In addition to the the postseason football interests realigning themselves, you also had a, a fundamental change in governance that really gave the football interests a controlling influence in NCAA governance. And that is when the NCAA in 1996 eliminated the one school, one vote regulatory model and went with a federated system, a representative system that was top heavy in university presidents and chancellors. And the NCAA Board of Governors and the NCAA Division I Board of Directors were all of a sudden loaded with university presidents and chancellors, and they came disproportionately from the big-time football schools. So you had really a hostile takeover of NCAA governance, and that presidential model, as I've said before, is the product of this belief that university presidents were actually going to rein in commercialization and professionalization in big-time college sports. And that came from the Knight Commission's work in the early 1990s, and it was just the fox in the hen house syndrome. And you had the rest of the NCAA see their interests marginalized by these powerful, what are now Power Five and Group of Five interests at the governance level. But that was a really important thing in the timeline. And I think it has contributed to some of the dysfunction at the regulatory level that now through this Constitution Committee has been resolved in favor of just saying outright what has really been the case behind the scenes for the last 30 years. And that is that this is a big-time football show. It's a Power Five show and, to a certain extent, an SEC show with Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, heading up this Division I Board of Directors Transformation Committee. And then the other thing that occurred along this timeline that's so important to how the powerful football interests see their place in, in the college sports regulatory market and the financial market was the NCAA's uh, shift in reliance financially to men's basketball and the aggressive exploitation of the March Madness tournament. And you had the rules changes in the 1980s to enhance the entertainment value of the sport. And then you had the hyper-marketing. This, this, that, that tournament is the most marketed sports product in, in American history, I think. I would say even more so than the Super Bowl. And the NCAA has been on that like flies on a rib roast since 1984. 
Post Board of Regents. And as I discussed in the last episode, the actual annual value to the overall marketplace of, of the March Madness money is really not that substantial when weighed against the, the football revenues. It has enormous importance to the overall business model because it is the sole source of revenue for the NCAA and its bureaucratic state, its national office, and then these downstream beneficiaries in lower-level Division One and Divisions Two and Three, and they're, they're getting block grants, and then the that money's paying for all these national championships and all the association-wide expenses, notably the litigation costs that the Power Five football interests benefit from, and it's through the exploitation of that March Madness contract that. We had this dynamic develop where you had the powerful football interest really doing whatever the hell they wanted to do, but keeping all their money to themselves because of Board of Regents, and they had uh, de facto control of NCAA governance. Now it's explicit, I believe. Then you had the NCAA National Office trying to fight for its administrative existence. And it gets that through this March Madness money, which, as I've said before, I don't think the Power 5 football interests care that much about. And then they keep all these downstream beneficiaries happy. And so you have this kind of a detente, really, between the national office, the March Madness money, and then the powerful football interests and their independent financial marketplace. And it's it's dysfunctional. It's just dysfunctional as it can be. And then uh, a little bit later in the timeline, 2006, you have Miles Brand announcing the collegiate model as a financial model in college sports in his 2006 State of the Association speech, where he announced that NCAA institutions and, and conferences in the big time football and men's basketball sweepstakes had an absolute duty, a mandate to maximize revenue in those two sports. So long long as that money was taken and spent in ways that were in some way consistent with the institution's nonprofit mission. And again, I've talked quite a bit about that. But in his rationalization for the exploitative business model, he also mentioned the March Madness contract and said that that was an essential component and that the NCAA had a duty and a mandate to maximize revenue from that contract. So Brand was essentially saying it's okay for us to have a professional uh, sports product in football and men's basketball so long as we take that money and spend it in, in ways that are outside of that commercial purpose and that professional purpose. And it's just, it's a ridiculous theory on its face, but it is alive and well, and it expresses itself today in a number of of ways, including in testimony before the United States Congress. And then as we're moving forward along the timeline, we have the, the finishing touches on conference realignment and the creation of this juggernaut Power Five. And that realignment was substantially complete by 2012, which is also the year that the CFP was formed. It's a private corporation. It's not a nonprofit. It doesn't exist under the NCAA umbrella, completely outside the NCAA. And, you know, that led to the playoff, this playoff that has been on the table for decades, but in-system stakeholder beneficiaries had shouted down because the status quo that existed for them in the prior iterations of postseason football was just fine 
fine and dandy, and they were afraid of any change. That's one of the things that comes through in, in, in all of these changes, and that is that at, at each phase, the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries aggressively try to defend the status quo that existed at the time and rejected any changes to that status quo, even ones that later occurred and then turned out to be far more beneficial than the old status quo. And some of that's human nature, I think, and, and the nature of institutions and, and, and financial interests. And we're seeing that again in real time with the changes in the marketplace as the result of a less regulated name, image, and likeness market, and then the transfer market, and the suggestion now going into 2022 that we should have a meaningful discussion about redefining the relationship between the laborers in college sports, the high-value revenue-producing laborers, and their employers, the beneficiaries of that labor in a way that might include recognition of these athletes as employees and perhaps collective bargaining. But when you raise those issues and just say, well, let's talk about those issues, the insistent stakeholder beneficiaries go nuts. They go berserk because they view that as a threat to their status quo, this status quo, which is really in flux right now. So we're, we're doing the same song and dance. And I guess the other thing I, I need to include in the timeline, and this is really important because it's actually going to serve as the template for what is happening right now with this Constitution Committee, and that is the Power Five's insistence on autonomy legislation. And it started, really started in 2013, and then the legislation was put into place in 2014, and it essentially created an association within an association. And that's really what the Power Five have been moving to. When you go back and you look at the history of these Power powerful football interests, they have been moving to consolidating their power, to isolating their interests, and they've been very successful in doing that and very successful in, in preventing any encroachment on the money they have access to or the regulatory power, the de facto regulatory power they've developed under the NCAA umbrella. And now it's, I don't think it's de facto, I think it's on the table now for people who are paying attention through this power grab with the constitutional makeover. And I think when you look at the history of big-time football, beginning in the 1950s and these wranglings for power and these writs over the direction of big-time football, I think what you see now is really the logical endpoint of all that wrangling. And the NCAA had control of the marketplace and, and televised football for 30 years. They lost it. Then you had this Hatfield and McCoy war between the Southern football interests and then the Midwestern and Western football interests. Then you had a disorganized market after Board of Regents. Then you had some attempts to try to restructure the postseason component of football. And then you had a reconciliation of the feuding factions from Board of Regents. And then you had this further aggregation of power at the regulatory level, then the further isolation of the football interests through autonomy. And what's happening right now, I think, is the logical endpoint for big-time college football, and that is absolute control of the market from a financial standpoint, absolute control of the market from a voluntary regulatory standpoint. And I think with this power grab by the Power Five through the, the constitutional makeover, you're seeing behind the scenes, there's some evidence that there is some disagreement about what the marketplace ought to look like going forward. And 
There's some obviously going to be some more wranglings about conference realignment, and that's going to invoke the same issues that have played out time and time again between the haves and the have-nots. And the in-system stakeholders have been very good about keeping their cards close to their vest, which is in stark contrast to the mayhem that occurred when news broke that the SEC had taken uh, Texas and Oklahoma and everybody was in a tizzy. But we're not hearing anything, much of anything, from these powerful in-system stakeholders now. So there's obviously a lot going on behind the scenes and some of that will reveal itself, I think, sooner rather than later in terms of the any realignment issues or any disgruntled have-nots in this these discussions about the expansion of the CFP. But again, to understand how all that will likely play out absent a lawsuit or absent congressional intervention, you have to really understand how the powerful football interests see themselves. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that through the lens of, of these hearings in 1997, 2003. And those are relevant today because you have the same thinking today. You have the same interests. You have the same motivations. You have the same basic business model. And the uh, powerful football interests are not going to allow any encroachment on the empire that they have built. And there's so many unanswered questions going forward with this transformation committee. And at some point, I think I'm going to do an episode on, on the things that were not raised during this debate over the new constitution and some of the obvious questions going forward. But one of them is going to be, are the Power 5 football interests going to kick in any money into the NCAA to help pay for all of the amenities that they now have control over but aren't paying a penny for under the current model? Are, are they going to pay their fair share for these association-wide expenses or any new expenses that arise at the divisional level? Or, or are they going to just say, well, no, we'll just let the March Madness money pay for all that. So again, just tons of questions that are on the table now after this constitutional makeover that received very little discussion or no discussion at all. And we'll be talking about that as we look at this transformation committee and what they're saying. If anything, they're supposedly meeting every week. It'll be interesting to see what kind of information we get coming out from that committee. So there you have it, a mini history of college football and actually college sports writ large, but with an emphasis on college football as we begin talking about this Power 5 football power play that is uh, happening in real time. So I'll go ahead and close this thing out, and I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you, and I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.